You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. you to turn in your scripture to the book of Mark again. We're in chapter 15, verse 33. This weekend, verse 33 through 39, Mark 15, 33 through 39, where we want to hear about and we want to learn about this great Savior and the glory of this cross. Um, As you're turning to Mark 15, We can look at a picture from last week. This is from Malachi and drew this picture. Joseph here, right? Um, That's taking uh, Joseph of Arimathea, taking Jesus, the donkey, to the tomb. We're going to get there. It's going to take us a couple weeks. We're going to get there. Malachi's looking out where we're going to be, and we are going to be there eventually. Um, But thank you, Malachi, for tracking along, and and you kids, Lord, uh, uh, it's great to be drawing uh, with us. So turn those in, and that's great. You guys are part of this. We want you to be part of this service. We're glad you are part here. Let's, uh, let's read this section, Mark 15, 33, and then through verse 39 for today. Let's, let's listen to the Word of God. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Let me pray for us again. Lord, as we enter to a time of just examining and looking at your word again, seeking to go verse by verse to understand what you have put down and by the breath, your inspiration of these writers of Mark here to record this great event. Lord, familiar ground perhaps, for us. Lord, would you refresh this ground, refresh our eyes again to the glory of our Savior on the cross. Lord, we pray for that. Guide my words. We pray your Holy Spirit would work amongst us. And Lord, that you would guide us again to see you. So we thank you that we can trust you for this and look to you and we pray your glory would be seen. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the 
the passage I just completed reading that we looked at takes us really, I think, to the heart of both the Old and the New Testament. All of the Old Testament moving forward to this one event. And all of the New Testament really not only looks back at this event, but even looks forward and anticipates, as we've seen in Mark, anticipates eternal truths based on this event. And by the words saying this event, I want to be careful to include the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord here. But specifically today, it's the death of Christ that we could spend much time. In fact, doesn't the Bible spend much time examining the wonderful facets of what's been accomplished? May you and I not be fooled into thinking one sermon can summarize this can summarize the infinite grace on display on this cross, the work of which we're going to sing about for eternity, about that Lamb who was slain, and to sing His worthiness forever. So we want to understand this event as best we could, as best we can. So before us, we have Mark's account. This is Mark's writing here. God's through the Spirit, through Mark. Each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all have their different details. So you can read through those. They're different audience for Mark. It appears his audience is those in, those in Rome. And in Mark's account here, I'm asking five questions of our text. I'm sure there's more. Uh, but perhaps as I read these, perhaps these came to your mind as we read this rather short text for us. But Here's some questions that just can pop out out of this text. Verse 33 talks about darkness. Why was there darkness in the land? What's going on with that? Verse 34, Jesus talks about this God who's forsaken him. What does it mean by Jesus to say he was forsaken of God? What does that mean? Question 3. What was it that made these bystanders in verses 35 through 36, what made them think about Elijah here? How how does Elijah come into this scene all of a sudden? They're talking about Elijah. Where does that come from? Number four question, verse 38, what does a curtain in the temple have to do with the cross? He's talking about drapery. Not at all, right? But what does that have to do with the cross? And then verse 39, as we look at that centurion, what about his reaction? What about this reaction of this centurion? Now, today we're going to attempt to tackle the first two questions and look at those dealing with the darkness in the land and the idea of Jesus being forsaken by God and, and try, to, try to let Scripture shed the light on why the darkness and What does Jesus mean when he cries out and says, why am I forsaken? And then, Lord willing, next week we're going to come back and we're going to look at these remaining three questions here of Elijah and temple curtains and the centurion. So question number one comes from verse 33. Let's just read it again to get refreshed. And it says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour, you're going to find notes in your scripture. That is noon, the sixth hour from noon, really, till the ninth hour, three o'clock, adding up from uh, six o'clock in the morning. So six plus six equals 
12. We got that down. So noon here or thereabouts till 3 o'clock. There's darkness over this land. And our question is, why was there darkness? I'm not attempting to ask why in terms of science. Was this an eclipse or what made it dark or how did that happen? We're, we're not asking that. Uh, you know, it's probably not, a, as I read one place, probably not a solar eclipse with, with the timing of the Passover and the full moon and however that's understood. That wasn't happening at this time. So for whatever reason, a solar eclipse can't really happen at the time. But that, that's not our goal. That's not what we're asking. We're saying, why this dark, why is darkness come? Not what's its source, but why, why this darkness? What does it mean, really? One dictionary I looked at, states of darkness, you might gather, it's the absence of light. That's helpful, and I think we might have figured that out. But they also go on to say, often used figuratively, <coughs> figuratively, as a symbol of sin, chaos, or the absence of God. Darkness. Now, I don't believe that's all that it can mean. Psalm 97.2 talks about clouds and thick darkness are all around Him or the Lord. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. So, biblically speaking, there's, there is more than one aspect to darkness. But we're looking at our text in verse 33 and this particular aspect of darkness here, that it's a darkness occurring during the day. Presumably, it is daytime, right? And a darkness comes over from noon till three. One commentator, R.T. France, says, Darkness during the day is a recognized mark of God's displeasure and judgment, a mark of God's displeasure and judgment. For instance, Amos chapter 8, verse 9. Now, today I'm going to go through a lot of scriptures. I'm going to try to list them. You're welcome to try to turn there or get there, but they'll go, some of them will go quicker than others. So um, if you want to write these down, you can look at them. Amos chapter 8, verse 9. This verse is in a chapter dealing with the judgment of God upon His people Israel who will be exiled from their land. They've trampled on the needy. Israel has treated the poor poorly. They treat the Sabbath with disdain. They don't honor the Sabbath. And so there is a day of God's judgment. And here's what Amos 8, 9 says. And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I'll make the sun go down at noon, darken the earth in broad daylight. Now, without studying Amos 8, 9 in depth, at least I think we can see from this, there's the idea of judgment and darkness coinciding together. Sun goes down, judgment's coming. See judgment, darkness. Another instance, people of Egypt. Remember when Israel was in bondage with Pharaoh? There was a darkness of judgment. Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go. The ninth plague was darkness. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. It came upon the people. They would not let 
Israel go and darkness came. A sort of judgment. And so I believe the darkness here, as we're back in Mark, verse 33, it's reminiscent of God's judgment of sin. There's judgment taking place. But a question. To whom is this darkness and judgment directed? What's the aim? The darkness, I believe, was a symbol and sign as to what had come upon the servant king, come upon Jesus. Think of it, the wrath of God bearing that. We've sung about it, I think, already. And we will. His displeasure in the darkness of this otherwise lit up day. There's a sense of the darkness of sin and judgment here. But rather than this darkness and judgment being, in this particular case, poured out on God's people, it's poured out on God's Son. So the darkness of verse 33 gives us, I think, a clue, a great clue as to what's going on on this this hill, this Golgotha, this place of a skull. What's happening here? And verse 34 gives us an idea of what this dark day felt like. Look at verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cries out from the cross. And Mark translates here the Aramaic to the language of his audience. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I believe Jesus said this precisely because he felt and was forsaken of God. He felt that the Father had turned his face away. And so we might further ask, why would God turn away from the Son? And in one part, I'm just going to say, it's a mystery. Uh, the ESV Study Bible says these words. Uh, they, they comment here, some of the most, according to this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the most profoundly mysterious words in the entire Bible. And so here we are. We're at these words. How do we understand them? I've already kind of given you my, my take on them. And I, I can't conclude from here that somehow the divine trinity at this moment was split up, right? So that Jesus was an outsider to the trinity and he was placed outside the circle that somehow God divided himself. I, d- I don't believe that to be the case. But there's some sense in which the God-man, the Son of Man, there's a realness to the fact that Jesus was forsaken of God. In Galatians 3 language, cursed of God upon the cross. I don't believe Jesus here at this point, he's truly asking why in terms of, you know, I don't understand why. I don't think he's saying that. or I don't think Jesus is unclear, unclear I'm sorry, of his mission to give his life as a ransom for many. You remember Mark 10, 45, came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. He knew why he'd come. I don't think he's on the cross going, I don't know what this is about. I think it's the cry of the anguish of the soul. The weight of sin. Isaiah's words, the punishment that brought us peace. The wrath of God poured out, brought Jesus to cry out, why have you forsaken me? 
In other words, what pain, what abandonment, what a hell I am in. To understand this, the weight of sin on the cross, it's helpful here to seek out how God reacts to sin throughout the Scriptures. That's what I want to do and look at and really think about the relationship of God and sin. And I think and I hope that as we look at these things, our eyes look at this one crying out, why have you forsaken me? And we say, whoa. This one? This one on the cross is doing this? So we're going to look at Scripture to help us understand. Hebrews 9.28 says this about Jesus, that He bears the sins of many. How do we understand that Jesus bears the sin of many? So we're going to take just a short journey of Scripture. Not a long one today, although I believe we could add to this, but let's just go back to the fall of man, a very familiar place to start where Adam and Eve fell in the garden. We're thinking about God, again, to understand, just helping context, to understand Jesus on the cross in this darkness, what's going on. We're looking back through Old Testament. We'll come to New a little bit. And we're looking back and saying, what do we see of God in the relationship of sin throughout? So that's what we're, what we're just picking at. So Adam and Eve in the garden, they take the fruit. God said, don't take from that one tree. And they disobey God and they felt shame. They were afraid of God. And God would end up doing what? He would end up cursing the serpent. There's great promise in Genesis 3 as well, but He did curse the serpent cursing the woman really with pain and childbirth. Many women here have experienced that. Some are coming to that. We won't dwell on that much, but that's part of this. This pain, this relationship with her husband that has been broken and and hurt. It's kind of damaged. There's cursing of the ground. So what does sin do? Sin brought a curse. And in Deuteronomy... God speaks to His people Israel and He makes a covenant with them. They talk about this curse and this blessing, this covenant, this divinely, right? Initiate agreement with man. And in this covenant that God makes with His people Israel, there are blessings for obedience and there are cursings for disobedience. Now, tra- stay with me because we're getting somewhere. R.C. Sproul says this, Under the Old Covenant, the reward for obedience was called a blessing. And the penalty for violating the contract was called a curse. Sproul goes on then to further explain blessings and cursings. Here's what he said. To the Jew, blessedness meant receiving supreme favor from the hands of God. And he goes on to say, a curse is the opposite of a blessing. So the supreme form of cursedness is for the Lord to turn His back on you and bring judgment on you. Now read that again. The supreme form of cursedness is for the Lord to turn His back on you and bring judgment on you. The concept of blessedness in the Old Testament, we understand there's other, we see blessings, land, this sort of thing, but I think if you package it and look at where it's going, it's this idea of nearness, proximity to the presence, to the face of God. 
To be blessed is to be in the presence and the face of God. And so, to be cursed is to be cut off from the presence of God. Never to see the light of His face. To be cast in the outer darkness, Sproul says. We come to a passage just to kind of show you this. You can write these down. Deuteronomy 31. God speaking to Moses. or Yeah, speaks with Moses to Israel. They're about to enter the promised land. And here's what's spoken of in Deuteronomy 31. I want you to think about that idea because we're going to find the word, listen for the word, forsake, where we're at in Mark, forsaken, the idea of curse or blessing or presence, face of God. Here's what it says. Uh, it's 31.16 if you're there. But, uh, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise. What people? The Israelites. This people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me. They will forsake me. And break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. Sin certainly has its material consequences. Famine in the land. Enemies overtaking Israel. But here I believe the ultimate consequence of sin is that God would hide His face from his people. If Psalm 1611 talks about in the very presence of God, there is fullness of joy. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. What's the opposite of that? What about God turning his face away in the absence, if you will, of God? Eternal pain, suffering. Isaiah 59 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. What about the New Testament? A couple passages. Mark 9.47 If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. What's the consequence of sin? Hell. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is, you know this one, death. Or 3.23 Sinners have fallen short of the glory of God. What about those who do not know God or obey the gospel? 2 Thessalonians 1.9 They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. What does that look like? Away from the presence of the Lord. You see this idea of God's face and presence and the blessing of being before Him and the cursing of Him hiding His face from us. Romans 5.10 tells us sinners are enemies of God. Ephesians 5 says that one time before Christ, you were darkness in the domain of darkness as Colossians 1 says. Sin and the relationship to God turning a face cursing. 
Look at Galatians 3. I do want you to go there. Galatians chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 10. Keep a finger in Mark. As you're going to Galatians 3.10, let me just read from the passage that Galatians 3 that we'll see here towards... um, towards verse 13 is based on. I'm just going to give you background. Deuteronomy 21, 22 says this. So we're going to Galatians 3. Here's Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. talks about the punishment of one on a tree. Here's what it said. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. And then we have the little word for. Helps us know why. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And Paul in Galatians echoes this same idea. I'm going to start at verse 10 in Galatians 3. <coughs> says this. For all who rely on the on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Alright? You fail in the law, you're cursed, Paul says. Verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And then verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that, what's the purpose of it all? Verse 14, in Christ Jesus The blessing of Abraham, I'm going to bless nations because of you, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse. If you head back then to Mark 15, We look back in our passage and Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you get a greater sense of just what Jesus was enduring when he bore the sins of many? Enduring darkness. Enduring wrath. Forsaking. Enduring punishment. Separation from God. If you will, hell. Here's what R.C. Sproul again says, and I'll quote him. It's a little more lengthy. Follow with him. He says, I've heard sermons about the nails and the thorns. Granted, the physical agony of crucifixion is a ghastly thing. But thousands of people have died on crosses, and others have had even more painful, excruciating deaths than that. But only one received the full measure of the curse of God while on a cross. 
Because of that, I wonder whether Jesus was even aware of the nails and the thorns. He was overwhelmed by the outer darkness. On the cross, he was in hell, totally bereft of the grace and the presence of God, utterly separated from all blessedness of the Father. He became a curse for us so that one day we, we one day will be able to see the face of God. God turned His back on His Son so that the light of His countenance will fall on us. It's no wonder Jesus screamed from the depths of His soul. Let me bring Scripture to bear on this again. Some familiar verses, I'm just going to list them out and read them. Romans 8.3 For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh with His Son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, that we might worship, that we might come to the presence, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In 1 John 4.10 And this is love. You want to know what love is? Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, the great satisfaction of God's wrath that we might enjoy God's favor. Wrath poured out not on us who are in Christ, but on the Son. That we might look to the Son and be righteous in Christ and stand before the God of the universe and worship. Do you understand what took place on the cross? The righteous one, Jesus, a king, took on the punishment that brought us peace. The sin of his enemies so that you and I might see and enjoy and live in the presence of God forever. Next week, we're going to look again at this passage. We're going to look at why these bystanders thought Jesus was Elijah. Hopefully explore the curtain being torn in the temple. A little more centurion saying, truly this was the Son of God. I just want to conclude briefly and look ahead a little bit to the temple for one minute. Uh, I cannot pass this by today as we look at verse 38 in light of what Jesus has done on the cross. So look at verse 38. The curtain of the temple, so when Jesus breathed his last, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What did the temple represent? Remember? Presence of God among His people. God's dwelling place. Specifically, that 
holy of holies where only one priest could enter once a year. What an illustration. What a present reality that when the wrath of God against sinners had been poured out on Jesus, it's finished. And the curtain, the barrier, if you will, between man and God is torn and we can enter His presence. The curse of sin and death, it's done away with with the sacrifice of Jesus. And so in Christ, those in Christ, we have access to the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, creation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The third stanza of the hymn, It Is Well, sums it up well. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Why can we bear it no more? Because Jesus bore it. For us. He bore the sins of many, Hebrews 9 tells us. The worship team can come up as we're going to sing a song about thanking Jesus. And I want to ask you, if you know this Savior, not assuming anyone, have you put your trust, have you come to the cross in repentance and seen your own sin before a holy and righteous God and said, He's righteous, I am not. I deserve this curse. I deserve his face to turn away. And yet you've seen that, and now you see a Savior who bled and died for sinners. And who lives again? We're going to get to. And may you put your trust in him, in that one name that can save you. And may we worship in this song and in our lives, worship this one who bore our sin. The blood we're going to sing about washed away our sin. Satisfied the wrath of God in our place.